The first reading is taken from Luke chapter 23, verses 33 and 34. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. It's wonderful to think that the first word of Jesus from the cross is a word of forgiveness. Have you thought about that before? That is the point of the cross, of course. Jesus is dying so that we might be forgiven for our sins, so that we might be reconciled to God for all eternity. But the forgiveness of God through Jesus doesn't come only to those who don't know what they're doing, as he prays there, when they sin. But in the mercy of God, we receive his forgiveness even when we do know what we're doing and what we have done is wrong. And yet God chooses to wipe away our sins, not because we have some convenient excuse, not because we try hard to make up for our sins, but because our God is a God of amazing grace, with mercy that is new every morning. As we read the words, Father, forgive them, so may we understand that we too are forgiven through Jesus Christ. As John writes in his first letter, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for us in our place, we are cleansed from all wickedness, from every last sin as we put our trust in him. We are united with God the Father as his beloved children. We are free to approach his throne of grace with all our needs and our concerns. God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. What great news is this first word from the cross. And if I was still in Africa, they'd say, you've just missed a great opportunity to shout hallelujah. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So as Jesus hung on the cross, he was mocked, by the leaders of the people and the soldiers. One of the criminals being crucified with him added his own measure of scorn. But, as we've just seen, the, the other crucified criminal sensed that Jesus was being treated unjustly. 
And after speaking up for Jesus, he cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded to this criminal, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise, from the Greek word paradisos, which meant garden, was used in the Greek Old Testament as the word for the Garden of Eden. And in the Judaism of the time of Jesus, it was associated with heaven and with the future, when God would restore all things to the perfection of the original garden. And this is the way that Jesus uses paradise in this passage. So we have in this second word from the cross, one of the most astounding and encouraging verses in all of scripture. Why? Well, because Jesus promised that this criminal would be with him in paradise. Yet the text of Luke gives us no reason to believe that this man had been a follower of Jesus, not at all, or even a believer in him in any developed sense. As a criminal, he might have felt sorry for the life that he'd lived, uh, that ended up with him being crucified now, but he did not obviously repent. Rather, the criminal's cry to be remembered seems more like a, a desperate last gasp effort. Now, don't get me wrong, though we should make every effort to have our right theology, and though we should live our lives differently each day as disciples of Jesus, in the end, our relationship with him comes down to simple trust, simple faith. Jesus, please remember me, we cry. And Jesus, embodying the immense mercy of God, says to us, you will be with me in paradise. And we are welcome there not because we've got the right theology, not because we're living rightly all the time, but because God is amazingly merciful and kind and gracious, and because we've put our trust in Jesus. John 19, 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, his disciple took her into his home. So as Jesus was dying, his mother was among those who remained with him. Most of the male disciples, of course, had fled. With the exception of one, whom the fourth gospel calls the disciple Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. We can't be exactly sure of the identity of this beloved disciple, though most scholars, interpreters, believe it is John. Well, no matter who the beloved disciple was, 
it's clear that Jesus was forging a relationship between this disciple and his mother, a relationship in which this disciple would take care of Mary financially and in other ways. Jesus wanted to make sure she would be in good hands after his death. I think the presence of Mary at the cross adds both humanity and, and a horror to the scene. We are reminded that Jesus was a real human being, a man who had once been a boy, who had once been carried in the womb of a woman, his mother. And even as he was dying on the cross, as the savior of the world, Jesus was also still a son and a role he didn't neglect in his last moments. So when we think of the crucifixion of Jesus from the perspective of his mother, our horror increases dramatically. The death of a child is one of the most painful of all parental experiences. But to watch one's beloved child experience the extreme torture of crucifixion must have been unimaginably terrible. We're reminded of the prophecy of Simeon shortly after Jesus' birth when he said to Mary in the temple, a sword will pierce your very soul. This scene then helps us not to glorify or spiritualize the crucifixion of Jesus. He was a real man, true flesh and blood, a son of a mother, dying with unbearable agony. His suffering was altogether real. And he took it on for you and for me. As Isaiah reminds us in his prophecy about the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as Jesus was dying on the cross, he echoed the beginning of Psalm 22, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? In the words of the psalmist, Jesus found a way to express the cry of his heart. Why had God forsaken him, abandoned him? Why did his father turn his back on Jesus in his moment of greatest agony. Well, this side of heaven, we will never fully know what Jesus was experiencing in those moments. Was he asking this question? Because in the mystery of his incarnational suffering, he didn't know 
why God had abandoned him? Or was his cry not so much a question as an expression of profound agony? Or maybe it was both. What we do know from the scriptures is that Jesus entered into the hell of separation from God his Father. The Father forsook him because Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sins. In those excruciating moments, he experienced something far more horrible than just physical pain, as bad as that was. The beloved Son of God knew what it was like to be rejected by the Father. As we read in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We can hear these words. We can say truly that the Father abandoned the Son for our sakes, for the salvation of the world. But can we really grasp the mystery and the majesty of this profound truth? Hardly. As Martin Luther once said, God forsaking God, who can understand that? Yet even in our tiny grasp of this immense reality, we are, we are called surely to confession, to humility, to worship, to adoration, to gratitude. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Well, that's four of the words of Jesus from the cross. I thought we could pause there. We're going to show a video now, and uh, it's up to you if you'd like to join in quietly. If you know the words, uh, you may do so, but you might just want to sit there and continue to reflect. It's a, vid it's a video song, and the words will be on the screen, The Power of the Cross.
John 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus experienced extreme thirst while being crucified, he would have lost a substantial quantity of bodily fluid, both blood and sweat, through what he'd endured, even prior to his crucifixion, his beating, his exhaustion. Thus, his statement, I'm thirsty, was on the most obvious level a request for something to drink. And in response, the soldiers gave Jesus sour wine, a cheap drink common among the poorer people in the time of Jesus. But John notes that Jesus said, I am thirsty, not only as a statement of physical reality, 
but also in order to fulfill the scriptures. Though there is no specific reference in the text of the gospel. But it's likely that John was thinking of Psalm 69, which includes these words. Verse 21, Psalm 69. They give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus' ministry was launched with the supernatural creation of wine at a merry wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee. Large pots full of the very best wine, miraculously fashioned from water. They were served to these surprised wedding guests. This was the wine of life. And his ministry ends with wine in a cool, darker setting. A sponge full of cheap, sour wine forced between his dry lips at the end of a stick. This was the wine of death. As we reflect on Jesus' statement, I am thirsty, we think of our own thirst. It's nothing like that of Jesus, of course. Whilst our bodies need water to survive, our souls yearn for the living water that only Jesus can give us. And we rejoice in the fact that he suffered physical thirst on the cross, and so much more, so that our thirst, our spiritual thirst, for the water of life might be quenched. Jesus tasted the sour wine of death so that we may enjoy the glorious new wine of his kingdom. John 19, verses 29 to 30. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the drink on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. When all there is is pain, its ceasing is the greatest blessing of all, even when its ceasing comes only with death. If you've ever watched uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you'll agree that for most of that movie, if you've seen it, you find yourself having to look away from the screen. It is a horrible to watch even in an acted version, cinematic version of crucifixion. But it's beyond comprehension to think that this actually happened to somebody in real life, and not just anybody, but to Jesus Christ, the most innocent of victims ever. Although we know in our heads what crucifixion is like, and so we have an idea what Jesus experienced, Seeing a visual presentation of his suffering is almost more than you can bear. When the film, The Passion of the Christ, is over, people who have watched it feel an enormous sense of relief. Thank goodness it's finished. 
When Jesus said, it is finished, surely he too was expressing relief that his suffering was over. It is finished meant in part this pain, this torture is finally over, it's done. But the Greek verb translated as it is finished, tetelestai, means more than just that. Eugene Peterson captures the full sense of the verb in his message version of the Bible in the words, it is done, it is completed. Jesus had accomplished his mission. Jesus had announced and inaugurated the kingdom of God. He had revealed the love and the grace of God. And he had embodied that love and grace by dying for the sins of the world, thus opening up the way for all of us to live under the liberated, liberating reign of God. Because Jesus finished his work of salvation, you and I don't need to add anything to it. In fact, we cannot. He accomplished what we never could, taking our sin upon himself and giving us his life in return. Jesus finished that for which he had been sent, and we are the beneficiaries of his amazing effort, work, completed. And because of what Jesus finished, you and I are never finished, in a sense. We're never down and out. We're never written off. We're never without hope. We're not finished like that. No, thank God, we have hope for this life and for the next. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one day, what God has begun in us will also be finished by his grace. So until that day, we live in the confidence of Jesus' cry of victory, it is finished, perfectly finished. Another opportunity to say hallelujah. Luke 23, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So it is the end, the very end, the end of the ordeal, the end of suffering, Jesus alone on the cross, tortured and exhausted, abandoned by his friends, forsaken by God. He gasps for a last breath and gathers the strength for one final cry. Why? Why would he muster the last energy he had to cry out with a loud voice. Couldn't God have heard his thoughts? Unless God wasn't the only one intended to hear it. 
unless his voice was pitched loud so that we too might hear this final affirmation of his soul. Jesus' death was not a leaving from something, but a going towards someone. The moment of death for Jesus was not a frightening step into the dark unknown. It was not a leap into some horrible, inexperienced chasm. No, death for Jesus was a return to the world he loved and longed for, the beautiful world of fellowship with God, back at home with the Father. Everything springs from and leads back to the Father. Jesus, the Son, is one with the Father and the Spirit, and they exist in an endless trinity of love. But love is not an abstract thing that exists like an idea exists. Love is three persons. Love has a face, and his name is Jesus. Life itself cannot be understood as an abstract concept. Jesus said, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And through his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus proves it. When we come humbly to the cross, deserving nothing but judgment, pleading nothing but mercy, Jesus delivers us from both the guilt of sin and the fear of death. So that in Jesus, we too are able to face the worst, whatever that might be and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As we trust in Jesus, even death itself is a moving towards rather than a leaving behind. It's a moving towards the place he has gone to prepare for us in the Father's house. Since we, the children, have flesh and blood, says the writer to the Hebrews, Jesus also shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Through this one death, we in Jesus leave defeat and move towards victory. We leave guilt and move towards forgiveness. We leave fear and we move towards peace. We leave despair and move towards hope. We leave slavery and move towards freedom through the death of Jesus. The death of death in the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, those are the seven words, sayings of Jesus from the cross. Maybe we'd just like to sit quietly for a moment before I pray and uh, we sing again and close. Think, perhaps, close your eyes if that helps. Think of those words. Maybe something or one of them spoke particularly to you this morning.
And so let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, we have and do remember today the pain and the suffering of the cross and all that Jesus was willing to endure so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free. He paid the price, such a great sacrifice, to offer to us the gift of eternal life. So, Lord, help us never to take for granted this amazing gift of love given on our behalf. Help us to be reminded of the cost. Forgive us for often being too busy or distracted by other things, for not fully recognizing what you have achieved for us and what you offer for us, what you've done for us. Help us in these moments to respond with gratitude, with renewed trust and faith in you and in your sacrifice for us. Thank you, Lord, that by your wounds we are healed. Thank you because of your sacrifice we can live free. Thank you that sin and death have been conquered and that your power is everlasting. So thank you that we can say with great hope, it is finished. And as we trust in Jesus, we can face a future, whatever it holds. For we know what's still to come in Jesus. Death has lost its sting. And we praise you that you are making all things new. And so we think in the silence and name friends, family, who need an especial touch of your love and grace, healing, renewal, blessing. We think today of your church worldwide. Thank you that we're part of this international, global, cosmic body of Christ. As many today gather at the cross, as it were, and worship you. Lord, bless your people throughout the world and us here as a a local expression of your church. And then we pray for our world today in all its need, in its brokenness. We thank you that we do have a message of hope and of forgiveness and of peace. We pray for those who are in great need of these things throughout our world today. So, Lord Jesus Christ, take us to yourself. 
Draw us with the cords of love to the foot of your cross, for we have no strength to come, and we do not know the way, but you are mighty to save, and none can separate us from your love. Bring us home to yourself, for we have gone astray. We have wandered far, but thank you for seeking the sheep that went astray. Under the shadow of your cross, let us live all the rest of our lives, and there we shall be safe until we pass from the shadows of this world into the light and love and the life of your eternal kingdom. Hear our prayers, accept our thanks, for we offer them all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so as God's family here, shall we say together the Lord's Prayer with the words on the screen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. So we're going to stand and sing our closing song together, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs>